0: Last week we started Isaiah, and I kind of gave you a 30,000 foot, 30, foot view of the book. And tonight, what I want to do is try to give you more of a historical perspective. I hope that this will be interesting to you, but as, I, as I've read the book personally in my personal quiet time, I've recognized that, boy, unless you have a kind of an Old Testament summary of to work with, it's hard to understand what you're reading. It's hard to understand what's happening and who are these people and all those kind of things. So what I want to do tonight is just try to work through the, the book with you, but from the perspective of history, help you understand some of the key events and some of the key people, especially the kings that Isaiah was speaking to. Just for review, last week, we talked about two important characteristics of prophets. Let's see if you remember any of this. And uh, Two important characteristics of prophets. Although they had a ministry of foretelling future events, they did foretell future events. What was their primary responsibility? Foretelling. If you read through Isaiah and other prophetic books, you will see this phrase, Thus saith the Lord, or God has told me to tell you. That's essentially what what they're saying. So the prophets, like Isaiah, were were forth-telling. They're saying, this is a word from God for you regarding this situation. And then the second characteristic of prophet is this. They were divinely chosen spokesmen who received and related God's messages to people. And that is, they didn't just volunteer to be a prophet. They, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't prophets by heredity like the priests. If you were born in the priestly line, you became a priest by your family line. But that's not the case for the prophets. The prophets were chosen by God to be His spokesman. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and people like that. So, that's where we left off last week, just kind of a 30,000 overview of the book. Uh, We've got another video. We showed you the first half last week. We've got another video we want to show you, the second half of the video, and then we'll try to do a timeline and work our way through the history of Isaiah so that we can better understand the content. All right, so let's watch this video.
1: The book of the prophet Isaiah In the first video, we explored chapters 1 to 39, which was Isaiah's message of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. He accused Israel's leaders of rebellion against God and said that through Assyria and then Babylon, Israel's kingdom would come crashing down in an act of God's judgment. And so chapter 39 concluded with Isaiah predicting Jerusalem's fall to Babylon and the exile. And a hundred years after Isaiah, it all sadly came to pass. But Isaiah's greater hope was for a new purified Jerusalem where God's kingdom would be restored through the future messianic king and all nations would come together in peace. And so chapters 40 and following explore this great hope. The first main section, chapters 40 to 48, open with an announcement of hope and comfort for Israel. The people are told that the Babylonian exile is over and that Israel's sin has been dealt with, a new era is beginning. So, they should all return home to Jerusalem where God himself will bring his kingdom and all nations will see his glory. Now, let's stop for a moment because this opening announcement raises a big question, that is, who is saying all of this? Whose voice are we hearing in these words of hope? The perspective of the prophet in these chapters is that of somebody who's living after the exile. In other words, in the time period described by Ezra and Nehemiah. But Isaiah died 150 years before any of that. So what are we supposed to make of this? Well, there are many who think that it's still Isaiah in his own day speaking, but that he's been prophetically transported, so to speak, 200 years into the future, and that he's speaking to future generations as if the exile is passed. However, the book of Isaiah itself gives us some clues that something else is probably going on. In chapters 8 and 29 and 30, we're told that after Isaiah was rejected by Israel's leaders, that he wrote and sealed up in a scroll all of his messages of judgment and hope, and that he passed it on to his disciples as a witness for days to come. Eventually, Isaiah died, waiting for God to vindicate his words. Now remember, chapters 1 to 39 were designed to show us that Isaiah's predictions of judgment were fulfilled in the exile. He's a true prophet. And so after exile is over, Isaiah's disciples, who have treasured his words for so long, open up the scroll and begin applying his words of hope to their own day. So on this view, the book of Isaiah consists of that first collection of Isaiah's words as well as the writings of his prophetic disciples that God uses to extend Isaiah's message of hope to future generations. Whichever view you end up taking, everybody agrees that these chapters are announcing that the future hope has come, that God is fulfilling Isaiah's prophetic promises. And so the prophet hopes that Israel will respond by becoming God's servant. That is, after experiencing God's justice and mercy through history, that they will now begin to share with the nations who God truly is. But that's not what's happening. Israel, instead of bearing witness to the nations, is actually complaining and even accusing God. They say, the Lord doesn't pay attention to our trouble. In fact, He's ignoring our cause. The Babylonian exile, understandably, caused Israel to lose faith in their God. I mean, maybe he's not that powerful. Maybe the gods of Babylon are way greater than our God. And so the rest of these chapters, 41 to 47, are set up like a trial scene. God is responding to these doubts and accusations with the following arguments. He says first that the exile to Babylon was not divine neglect. Rather, it was divinely orchestrated as a judgment for Israel's sin. And second, it was for Israel's sake that God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon so they could come back home fulfilling Isaiah's words. So the right conclusion that Israel should draw is that their God is the king of history, not the idols of the nations. In the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Persian king Cyrus, Israel should see God's hand at work and so become his servant, telling the nations who he is. But by the end of the trial, chapter 48, we find that Israel is still as rebellious and hard-hearted as their ancestors. And so God disqualifies them as his servant, but God still is on a mission to bless the nations. And so the prophet says God's going to do a new thing to solve this problem, which moves into the next section, 49 to 55. We're introduced to a figure who's called God's servant, who's going to fulfill God's mission and do what Israel has failed to do. God gives this servant the title Israel and sends this person on a mission to, first of all, restore the people of Israel back to their God, but second, to become God's light to the nations. And we're told that this servant is empowered by God's Spirit to announce good news and to bring God's kingdom over all of the nations. It sounds just like the Messianic King from chapters 9 and 11. But then we learn the surprising way of how the servant will bring God's kingdom. He's going to be rejected and beaten and ultimately killed by his own people. In reality, as he's being accused and sentenced to death, he's dying on behalf of the sin of his own people. The prophet says the servant's death is a sacrifice of atonement for the people's evil and rebellion. And then, after his death, all of a sudden, the servant is just alive again. And we hear that by his death, he provided a way to make people righteous. That is, to put them in a right relationship with God. And so, this section concludes by describing two ways people can respond to the servant. Some will respond with humility and turn from their sins and accept what God's servant did on their behalf. These people are called the servants and also the seed. Remember the Holy Seed from chapter 6. These are the ones who will experience the blessing of the messianic kingdom. But there are others who are called simply the wicked and they reject both the servant and his servants. Which brings us to the final section of the book 56 to 66 where the servants inherit God's kingdom. These chapters are beautifully designed as a symmetry that brings together all of the themes of the book. At the very center are three beautiful poems that describe how the spirit-empowered servant is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor. And he reaffirms all of the promises of hope from earlier in the book. The new Jerusalem, inhabited by God's servants, will be the place from which God's justice and mercy and blessing flow out to all the nations of the world. And surrounding these poems are two long prayers of repentance where the servants confess Israel's sin and they grieve over all of the evil they see in the world around them and so they asked God to forgive them and that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Now in each side of these prayers are collections of more poems that contrast the destiny of the servants with that of the wicked who persecute them. God says he's going to bring his justice on all who pollute his good world with their evil and selfishness and idolatry and that he's going to remove them from his city forever. But the servants, those who are humble before God and who repent and own their evil, they are forgiven and they will inherit the new Jerusalem, which we discover is an image for an entirely renewed creation where death and suffering are gone forever. And This brings us to the very outer frame of this part of the book. In this renewed world of God's kingdom, people from all nations are invited to come and join the servants of God's covenant family so that everyone can know their Creator and Redeemer. And so the book of Isaiah ends with the very grand vision of the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Through the suffering servant king, God creates a covenant family of all nations who are awaiting the hope of God's justice in bringing a renewed creation, where God's kingdom finally comes here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the very powerful hope of the book of Isaiah.
0: Okay, take out a blank page and let's have our test and see if you learn. I told you last week that one of the key elements of Isaiah is that though Isaiah lived 700 years before Christ, he wrote as if he knew him. And it's just a fascinating thing to read his prophecies, for example, in chapter 9 and in chapter 53 about the coming Messiah. However, as fascinating as that is, the book of Isaiah is far more than a sneak pre or sneak peek preview into Jesus Christ. It really is a study of sin. It's a study of how slowly sin destroyed two nations. It really is a story of two nations who were known as God's people, and yet they both were conquered by invading nations. These were God's chosen people. But because of sin, eventually, both nations were conquered. So here's what I want to do is try to paint for you a, a timeline. Try to paint for you a, a historical picture. Uh, by the way, he he said in the video that, that there were two authors, perhaps to the Isaiah. I believe there were one, and I hope that we'll be able to get to that a little bit more when we get to the end of the study if we don't run out of time, but... But let's just try to make a timeline. I am going to talk to you about 10 or 11 key events. Just give you some dates and some, some events of some kings, as well as some key events that will help you to understand the book of Isaiah. I want to start in the year 790. 790, of course that's BC. And I want to talk about, well... I want to talk about a king named Uzziah. 790 B.C., King Uzziah. In 790, Uzziah became king of Judah. And I want you to see what the Bible says about him. We're going to go to 2 Chronicles. We'll be in Chronicles and Kings, different places tonight, trying to get a picture of these people that served during the time of Isaiah. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Second Chronicles... Chapter twenty-six, verse one. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was how old? You know any sixteen-year-olds that, that qualified to be king? I mean, that's just fascinating. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father, Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Eloth and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for how long? 52 years. His mother's name was Jecoliah, he was from Jerusalem. and Now here's, here's an important point. I, with each of these kings, I want you to, to discern, is this a good king or a wicked king? Alright, so look at verse uh, 4. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him Success. So, these kings had good days and bad days. They were up and down, of course. Uh, But would you summarize Uzziah as a good king or a bad king? Good king. Easy question. However, if you keep reading, go down to verse 16. I want you to see something that happens. Let's start at verse 15. In Jerusalem, he made machines designed by skillful men for use of the on the towers and on the cornered defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped. That is, he was greatly helped by God until, until he became powerful. Then look what happened in verse 16. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest was with eighty other courageous priests of the Lord. Followed him in. They confronted him and said, "It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord." That was the role of the priest. He had no business being there. But he was full of pride. He was full of himself. This is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. And while he was raging at the priests and their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Azariah the chief priest and all the other priests looked at him they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead so they hurried him out indeed he himself was eager to <laughs> I like that he was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him now, the reason you need to remember Uzziah is because he sets the stage later for Isaiah so Uzziah was king and he reigned how long did it say that he reigned? Bef- alright when he got leprosy, he was no longer able to function as king. So technically, he continued to be king, but his son came in and took over. And the date on that is 750 BC. 750 BC, Jothan, Jotham, J O T H A M. Jotham became king in residence, if you will. He began to govern in the place of his father. Though his father was technically still the king, he took over uh, there in Jerusalem. And it says in verse, uh, chapter 27 of Second Chronicles, verse 2, He did, Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done, but unlike him, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. The people, however, continued their corrupt practices. So, so we get this little nugget that things are overall going pretty well. The king is, is following the Lord, but sometimes the people were not. So just keep that in mind. Then in 740, 740 BC, this is when Isaiah is called by God to be a prophet. This is a key time. I want you to go to Isaiah now, chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. What's the very first verse say in Isaiah chapter 6? What are the words there? Yeah. Look up here. In the year that King Uzziah died, this likely was the only king that Isaiah really had known. Isaiah and Uzziah had overall been a very good king until he had that time of pride. It was Any of you remember when, when President Kennedy was shot? I, I, I don't. That was, I was a little bitty baby or something. What, what year was that? 64? Three? All right, I was three years old. I wasn't a baby. I was three years old. But I don't really remember. But for those of you who were there or you remember it, you're old enough to remember that, that event. That, that is a, a, watermark in your, a watershed mark in your life, isn't it? You, you're always going to remember where you were, what happened. You, you're going to remember all about it. And, and from what I've read, the nation went through a hard time after President Kennedy was shot because our leader was gone. Oh, of course we had a vice president that could take over, but, but our president was dead. That's essentially what happened here. And it's interesting that in this story about Isaiah's call to ministry, his call to be a prophet, and we're told in the very first verse of chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, when the throne essentially was empty, God's throne was not. God called Isaiah to be a prophet. All right, now, after Jotham, reigned, the next person to take over was his son, Ahaz, and the date for that is 731. 731, Ahaz took over. Again, he was the son of Jothan. Ahaz, we read about him uh, in 2 Kings chapter 16, if you want to turn there. 2nd Kings chapter 16. 2nd Kings chapter 16 verse 1. In the seventeenth year, of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem sixteen years. Now watch this. Unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Look at verse three. This this is very important. He walked in the ways of the kings he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire. Following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. For sake of time, skip down to verse 11. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. When the king came back from Damascus, he saw the altar. He approached it and presented offerings on it. And he offered up his burnt offering and grain offering, poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his fellowship offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that stood before the Lord, he brought from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar." King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest. On the large new altar, offer the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering and the grain offering and the burnt offering of all you say, wait, what is all of this? Let me tell you what happened. Here's what happened. You take the time to read that whole story. Here's what Ahaz did. Ahaz led in the in the uh, practice of idol worship. He led the country to turn away from God and to actually build altars and worship the idols. And it says in the text, we've already read it, he sacrificed his son. He sacrificed his son. And one of the ways that they did this, they, they, they worshiped the, the, the God of Moloch, little g, God, so-called God of Moloch, God of Moloch was was uh, something that was fashioned out of metal. It was a figure that was fashioned out of metal. It was hollow on the inside. It had arms like this. And they built a fire inside this God of Moloch. And he he was breathing fire because of the fire was inside this, this figure. And they would bring their children, their babies, and they would, as they worship this pagan idol that get this fire really hot inside this metal idol until it was red hot and then they would take their babies and lay the babies in the arms of those pagan idols. That's what Ahaz did. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 6 you don't have to read it right now. J.D. told me this when we were in Boston a couple of weeks ago. He said, have you ever noticed that when everybody talks about the, the call of, of uh, Isaiah, this and it is a wonderful, beautiful call, because it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I had this vision of the Lord, and, and the Lord said, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, what did he say? Here am I, send me. And we stop at about verse 6. Ever read the verses following that? You know what God said to him? I want you to go talk to him and tell them, but they're not going to listen to you. You go out and proclaim, but nobody's going to listen to you. You know why? Look up here. Because Isaiah, when he was called in the year that King Uzziah died, when he was called by God, not long after that, guess who took over? Ahaz. Pagan Worshipping King Ahaz, and so in seven twenty-two, a key key date in Bible history. In fact, I'm going to put this in red. Seven twenty-two. This is a key key date that you need to really understand. This one, uh, Israel is destroyed. By Assyria. God's judgment on this people. Now, remember, when I'm, talking about Assyria, when I'm talking about Israel, I'm talking about the ten northern tribes. Because after the death of Solomon, after Solomon, the king of Israel died, uh, there was a division of the land. The ten northern tribes became Israel. They had a king. The two southern tribes were called Judah. They had a king. And so, in 722... Because they had turned their back on God, God sent judgment on Israel, the ten northern tribes, and Israel was destroyed. Now, man, i got to go. Let me give you another date. 7.15. 7.15, we have another king come on the scene. His name is Hezekiah. 715 B.C. Hezekiah became king of Judah, not Israel, because remember, Israel's wiped out by now. So Hezekiah becomes king of Judah, 715. And here's what he did. This is good. Watch this. Hezekiah is the son of Ahaz. Hezekiah reversed what his evil father had done. Let's look at it in the text. Uh, 2 Kings 18. Second Kings. You, you see the, the book called Kings is really a record of the kings of Israel and Judah. And we see in Second Kings chapter eighteen, verse two. Let's well, verse one and two. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was twenty-five years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem twenty-nine years. His mother's name uh, was, is listed, and he, well, here's what I want you to see, verse 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Now when it says his father David, it means his descendant, doesn't mean his literal father. He removed the high places, watch this. He undid what his father had done, verse 4. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Hezekiah, verse 5, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands of the Lord, uh, the commands the Lord had given Moses. That is, he was keeping the Old Testament. He was keeping the, the first five books of the Old, Old Testament, he, the law. He was obeying that. And the Lord was with him and was successful in whatever he undertook. So that was 7.15. Good king or bad king? Easy question, right? Good king or bad king? 7.05. 7.05. Hezekiah in 7.05 revolts against Assyria. We don't have time to really talk about that, but Assyria had come in and destroyed Israel and and Judah lived under that constant threat. Hezekiah kind of pushed back and revolted against Assyria, and then in seven hundred one, in seven hundred one, Assyria comes back again. They surround Jerusalem, and Hezekiah cries out to God in prayer. Go to. Uh, let's see. I think it's chapter second Kings chapter thirty No, it's not hang on a minute. Isaiah chapter thirty seven. Go to Isaiah chapter thirty seven. here's what happened. Assyria has come in. They've already defeated Israel. Now they've come in and they think they're going to take Jerusalem as well. So they actually surround Jerusalem. They want to conquer the city of Jerusalem and take over the territory of Judah. That happened in 701. Hezekiah was a godly king. So Hezekiah turns to the Lord In, in chapter 37. Here's what we read. When King Hezekiah heard this... That what Assyria was trying to do. He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, the leading priest, all wearing sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. And they told him, this is what Hezekiah says, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace as when children come to point of death, or point, I'm sorry, come to the point of birth, there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. And, and for sake of time, if you would look in, I, we don't even have time to read it, but beginning in verse 14 through verse 20, Hezekiah prays to God, and he says, God, we don't have power against these people. There's no way we can conquer this nation that has surrounded us. Only you could do that. And God indeed sends Assyria packing. And they leave. They do not conquer Jerusalem. Let me go real quick. Um, I'm almost there. 6.95. 6.95. 6.95. Another king takes the throne named Manasseh. 6.95 Manasseh takes the throne of Judah. Manasseh was an evil king. Uh, We don't have time to... uh, Let me just give you the reference. You can read it for yourself. 2 Kings 21. Just read 2 Kings 21 and you will see what happened uh, to the kingdom under Manasseh. Which led to two more dates. By the way, This is the king who likely had Isaiah killed. Tradition says, Jewish tradition says, that Manasseh had Isaiah placed in a hollow log and then had him sawed in two. That likely happened under the reign, the evil reign of Manasseh, which brings two other dates. One is 586 B.C., 586 B.C., In 586 B.C., Babylon, the country of Babylon comes in, and they destroy Judah. Israel was destroyed by Assyria, and in 586, Judah was destroyed by the country of Babylon. And in 538, 538, the last date, the people of God are carried off to Babylon. They are carried off to exile until 538 B.C huge date in Bible history 538 B.C. the Jewish exiles are allowed to go back to their homeland. They're in Babylon they're exiles, they're prisoners and in 538, we'll talk about it next time 538 B.C. they are allowed to go back to their homeland but there's a remnant here's the story of the Bible, there's always a remnant there was a remnant of the people of God allowed to go back to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem So, of course, I didn't get done, but um, here's what I want you to understand. Would Would you look at this board? These are more than just dates. You know what this is? Not just dates. It's not just names. It's evidence that God works in history. God works through history. Ladies and gentlemen, the same God who is working through the history of the Old Testament, is at work today as well. He still works through history. Maybe we can talk more about that next time. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you sovereignly reign, that as the Bible says, you are the king of kings. That whoever is on the throne is always under your throne. And that you accomplish your will through history. It really is your story that you're writing. Continue to help us understand, I pray, the book of Isaiah. Give us insight. And may it be life-changing for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.